Hello everyone and welcome back to the track and field performance podcast. This is episode 25 and today I'm joined by the University of Florida's assistant coach, Coach Nick Peterson. Nick, as you all probably know by now, is one of the most formidable jumps coaches in the world, never mind the NCAA. And so this episode has been on the cards for a while and with such a demanding schedule being someone who not only coaches the top collegiate athletes in the country, but someone who really is never ending um with their coaching season because of coaching so many post-collegiate athletes as well at the major championships and so forth so took us a while between my my schedule of um moving around and and his as well to to nail this one in but i'm very happy we got to do it we talked everything from physical preparation mental preparation technical preparation in season um during season you name it, we 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 tried we try to touch on it, and so Nick was able to provide a, a wealth of insight for things regarding the approach, the takeoff, flight mechanics, and um, really how that kind of fits in the general scheme of his year um, when he's working with collegiate athletes. But not only that, how he works with some of his more senior athletes, how is he managing training dosages now uh, versus before. And so there's a lot of unique lessons there that you can see Nick as high caliber as he is and as widely regarded as he is. There is still a very keen interest in learning about how he can do things better for the athlete in front of him. And I think that's what's beautiful about his approach, even at this stage. And um, no matter how far he's got, he's still looking at who's in front of him and applying those basic principles and revisiting um, what he once thought was the way to do something and and tweaking it ever so slightly for that athlete. So I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. I want to give a shout out to the affiliate of this podcast, Track Barn. Um, if you're looking for customized apparel for your track club or even just for your facility, you're looking for pole vault mats, shot rings, or anything that you might think of, Track Barn pretty much has it all. And you can use the TNF10 promo code at the checkout in order to get your 10% off discount guys thank you so much for your patience during this time and uh, i hope you enjoy the episode all right ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for your patience and um, i'm glad to welcome uh, coach nick peterson the university of florida to the table today to talk all things horizontal jumps nick how are you doing i'm doing great pleasure to be on here so nick you just come fresh off the the plane basically from Oregon enjoying one of very few down days that you get during the year what's your overall assessment of the year I suppose it's been a long one for you but you know we had a great year um you know always relentless self-evaluation is you know something we do a lot of and I I've already seen ways in which I felt we could have done better but um from a broad point of view I think looking across the board you can say we had a had a fantastic year and um the athletes that i've been involved with have stepped it up and and done a great job in a lot of ways yeah so. and i think I, I love that uh, relentless self-evaluation do you i know you, as a coach uh, many will be very critical evaluators themselves but do you kind of foster that in your athletes as well as they go through these kind of down periods now where you're heading away from a major championships like do you build something in during that kind of rest period where they they look at themselves as well as you know um, you look, you, you look spending a lot of time looking at yourself, which I'm sure you do anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think it's both sides. Um, I'll have a, like an end of the year meeting 
with most of my athletes. Um, kind of depends. Like right now, I've been gone, so we haven't done a lot of that. So a lot of times, the end of the year and the beginning of the year meeting kind of get lumped into one meeting. Um, but when we start talking about goal setting and, and moving forward to the next year, that conversation starts with, you know, what did we do well? What do we need to be better at? Um, and for me, it, um, you know, nothing's off the table. Um, I like to say that, um, you know, if we can get 1% better at everything we do, we're going to be a heck of a lot better. So, I mean, we talk a ton about sleep. We talk about nutrition. And I mean, for my guys, it's uh, how much Call of Duty are we playing till three <laughs> in the morning? You know, so nothing's off the table. And it's the same way for myself. You know, um, you know, it's funny because with Coach Holloway, there's there's constant conversation back and forth between the two of us. And it's funny because at times I don't I don't take it real well because I think of it as I get a little uh, I, you know, I try and defend what I'm doing here and there. But at the same time, I love it because um, he keeps me honest in a lot of ways. And it's nice to just hear, you know, because he just wants to be better, too. And so mm -hmm. it's nice to have that kind of thing. And, and so that's really where we get to. It's just nothing's off the table. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we're constantly moving forward and getting better in everything we do. It's hard to argue with his approach there, given the accolades that you guys keep racking up over there. And, um, you know, you always think about close relationships and seeing the, I guess, camaraderie and, and the nice things that are going along with being close to one another. But that challenge aspect is, is something that it's, it's not necessarily always lumped in there, but it's, it's very necessary for growth. And, and, and as you say, it's, it's not off the table with your athletes and likewise with the coaching staff and how that kind of goes through the hierarchy. It's, uh, you, you are challenged too, not just by them, but but by, yeah. by your, your chief of staff, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, he's, um, I, I gotta say, obviously he's been very successful at everything he's done, but it's for a good reason. He wakes up every day and, and it's, how are we going to ring the bell today? I mean, he never turns it off. It just, it doesn't ever happen. And that's why he is who he is. And, and so we, uh, they say you become most like the people you spend the most time around. So, I mean, been around him 10 years. It's hard not to try and emulate that in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And of course, the jumps group are, are always evolving in, in the University of Florida, known for a very long time as Jumpsuit and maintaining that to this day. Um, how do you like, I mean, obviously, recruiting is a big part of it, of course, you know, you're getting the talent in, but how do you kind of live up to that standard? Is that something that, you know, you kind of embed in there? Or how do you keep churning out these like world class jumpers? Because it just seems when you're done with one crop, another keeps coming through. Well, I mean, it. I got to go back to Coach Holloway. He started. He's built an incredible culture here, um, you know. And coming in, that's something I wanted to be a part of. But at the same time, add to and add my own flair to it. Um, it's funny because people ask me that a lot. Like, is there pressure? You know, being in Florida. And to be honest, I can say no because I put that same kind of pressure on myself, regardless. Like, um, you know, we want to be the best. At what we do and everything we do and that's just kind of how we operate from a from a daily perspective of practice and everything else that's just kind of our daily mantra is we're going to do everything to the best of our ability and um you know so coming in here and and just trying to make sure you recruit the best kids on the planet and you hold them accountable you hold them to a high standard and you know i mean even 
I'm sure we can get into this more, but you got Jasmine Moore walking in the door, who's obviously been a, a very accomplished, uh, you know, jumper and, and trained at a high level. And it's got to be trust on both sides. But I mean, to not have the fear to, you know, oh my gosh, if I change this, am I going to, am I going to mess this up? You know, it's, it's, I, you just, you just get to work. You just put your head down and you fix things and you build relationships with athletes and there's mutual trust. And when you get that kind of culture going, it, it makes things a lot easier to continue to just, you know, when you bring Keandre Bates in and he spends every day with Marquis Dindy, it makes my job a lot easier, you know, yeah. same kind of thing. Um, you know, Giannis and Dariel and, you know, Jasmine, Claire, I mean, Anna, it's just, they just feed off each other in a lot of ways. And it's um, certainly it, it makes managing egos and managing expectations, probably the most difficult part of, uh, you know, having a big time group like I have, but it's the reason they're successful in a lot of ways is because of the training group we have and, and what we've built here. That makes a lot of sense. I suppose that, that it opens up a number of great topics. But when I think about what you're saying there, even when you're evaluating with your athletes, is just the idea that you could joke about them on like what they're spending their evenings doing, like playing Call of Duty. It's just kind of like the right amount of banter where you're 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 building a bit of rapport, but it's also like, look, I don't blame you for playing your video games, but like <laughs> under certain parameters, like we could we gotta be professionals too. Like yes. I think that's a good thing because that kind of not i wouldn't say friendship but sometimes making those little you know jokes is 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 almost like seen as unprof not unprofessional but like you couldn't relate to them in that way if that makes sense and i think like the more ways you find uh the human side to them i think you end up probably building a little bit more rapport don't you think i completely agree and especially with uh you know i keep getting older and these kids basically stay the same age you know and <laughs> um it's interesting because I wouldn't say that the kids have changed. People are always like, well, the kids have changed. I, I don't think so. I think we've changed in how we treat people and how we mm -hmm. hold people accountable. And um, I just earn their trust from the very beginning. That's, that's my goal. You know, um, it kind of used to be when athletes showed up, it was, they automatically trusted you. And it's, it's not that anymore. It's, you know, and you coach yourself, you totally understand this, but mm. um you've got to earn their trust. And I find that a lot easier when they know how much you care about, them. you know, um, they're not just points. They're not just, you know, bodies in a gator uniform. It's, it's the total person. And I think when you develop that, you're more successful on the track, you know, it's just, it's how we do it. And I tell my wife all the time, how big of a, I mean, but that's my whole family is involved in this, you know, my mm -hmm. kids are at the track and, you know, they're involved in the recruiting process and they're involved in the coaching process. And it, it really is a family dynamic. And that's kind of what I like to, to use is like, they are my family. They are a part of my family. And with that, there's love and there's trust and understanding, but there's also massive accountability. And you can, and when you really, when they know you have their best interest at heart, you can hold them accountable. You can call them on their mess. You can tell them when they're doing things wrong. And it doesn't come from a bad part or they don't think it comes from some, you know what I mean? Yep. It just makes it easier. You can be really, really hard on a kid and really demanding on a kid, an athlete. I shouldn't call them kids, but you know what I mean? You can be, you can be those things and still care about them. They're not mutually exclusive. 100%.
Yeah, so. no, no, totally. And I think, as we just kind of mentioned in the beginning, like, that's what you do with your greatest friendships is that you've developed that rapport to a degree where they don't feel like it's a personal attack, because there's so much history there. And times when you looked out for them in, in the nicer ways that again, the more traditional ways we think of like, love and so forth, but it comes with with multiple different dynamics. And that is sometimes challenging them and saying, Hey, like if you really want to get better, you're saying you want to jump X distance, but here's the reality. Your lifestyle is like this. And Absolutely. that's not, you know, you trying to tell them off for no reason. That's just you pointing out. We've talked about these goals. I want to see you do it, but here's the problem. You know, you're not taking care of your part of the, of the deal. And um, I, I really think that's a, a great way to look at it. And I suppose when you're talking about changes, integrating changes with newcomers and stuff, you said, put the head down, get the work in, but are you a little bit more delicate with how you kind of integrate things, especially when you've got like high caliber athletes like Jasmine Moore just transferring in, you probably see a lot of things in the beginning, but then how would, how you address them in, in, in kind of what sequence or, or how big, how quick, how does that look? Um, like, do you have a kind of a, a general rule of thumb for those? I mean, Generally speaking, we we treat freshmen different than sophomores and et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, from a training standpoint, the intensity is different on the newcomers than the returners. Um, but I would tell you it's, it's an indi- individual case-by-case basis. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword. If you're afraid to make changes, how are you ever going to be really great? But if the changes are so much that you take 15 steps backwards before you're able to go forwards, then is that change, um, you know, really effective? Um, And so, and that kind of goes back, like, especially with Jasmine, you know, uh, we sat down together and we, we talked about weaknesses. We talked about strengths, um, and really from everything we do, technique is, and we'll talk a lot about technique in this whole thing. It's, it's the cornerstone of everything that I do um, from how they're walking, how they're everything. There's nothing off limits from the warm up through everything. And so from that standpoint, we can't be afraid to make technical changes. Um, and, you know, maybe with a Jasmine Moore, maybe early on, they're a little bit you know, smaller changes than that high school freshman that's walking in the door that you, you know, you just have to make radical changes and break bad habits first. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's one thing we do really well here at Florida is we're not afraid to coach and you can't be. Um, If you're going to compete at at the levels that we want to compete at NCAA world championships, Olympics, you got to make changes and and there's no time like the present. Um, So I don't know if I've got like a, a formula to, Hey, this is, you know, I think it's just case by case and, and you take it day by day. I mean, there's even, you know, you may have tried all fall to make a change with somebody and it, and it didn't work. So you go away and you just kind of accept that they're going to do things their own way. And, and I don't know, that's why, you know, I say all the time that they're not jello molds. Like my technique is a constant, it is in constant changing because somebody's technique is going to be a little different than the other person's technique. And there are, you know, biomechanical reasons. And there are certain things that everybody just has to do to be elite. But at the end of the day, if you take away what they already know how to do or what they do well, I think you're, 
you've got to tailor it to them. And that's where yeah. I get to the individual part of it. Like, you know, Jasmine and Natricia were two totally different triple jumpers in how they approached it and how they came about it. Doesn't mean we didn't talk about a lot of the same things, um, but there's just different different characteristics that each each of them bring, you know, and we could get into some details to that. But at the end of the day, I think it's about individualizing and, and making sure you you put that athlete in the best place forward to be successful. No, that makes complete sense. I mean, if you think about the, even their frames as a whole, like you can watch, I, I've, I've watched that Birmingham video of the two of them just lighting the place on fire a few times. And it's just like, they're both wearing a white uniform, but couldn't be more different in terms of their expression of like moving through the faces, running down the runway. And even like, you can see, like I've followed, you know, your group for a long time and you can see like the, some parts of the back of the run are similar, but they're not like identical by any means. Like there's definitely a, like a fundamental emphasis on something, but it's like how the athlete gets it done is certainly something that uh, is individual. And uh, I can attest to other coaches saying that I, I remember Stu McMillan saying when I, when I talked to him, you know, uh, efficiency is, is, is key for him in that the idea that the athlete could lose their signature of expressing movement how they want to is, is really, is a really bad trap to fall into chasing the ideal model. So we're always going, Oh, here's 100% technique. But the thing is the athlete has kind of a roadmap of their own to getting there. And you've got to let them like, that's the kind of idea of freedom, almost like freedom of movement is how they do it. And if that's 98% and repeatable, then that's probably better than, you know, whatever this ideal 100% that you're trying to chase is, um, which probably may not even happen, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just think it, you know, you can spend so much time trying to develop people's weaknesses that you don't ever actually play to their strengths. And I think that's, you can get in trouble doing that. So absolutely. That's all true. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess going into that topic and, and, talking about training more so i'd imagine your individualization is is definitely on the coaching front heavy but for programming wise if you do get an athlete who's like say horizontal jumper who's very power based and then you get someone who's freakishly elastic like where do you type start to make those modifications in in the training or do you at all yeah i mean i think um you know and that's kind of where i think you use your eye right um I definitely write the training very similar for each one of my athletes. Um, where the changes come in is more in what you're seeing during, right? Um, you know, whether it's from a plyometric standpoint, some people I have to keep plyometrics around a little longer that, you know, the more elastic people that, you know, there's some that are volume based. There's some that that have to have more volume in the plyometrics than others that don't need any volume, you know, and, and that's where um, I play around with that in the fall and, and see how they do with this, you know, and how they do with this type of um, elastic, whether it's plyos or whether it's speed or, or acceleration, you know what I mean? And that kind of goes to um, how I set up once we get into meets depends upon how they've reacted to what I've given them in, in the, in the fall. And that's a very general broad way of saying it. But um, I mean, we, we all learn acceleration early, 
Um, it's certainly something we spend a tremendous amount of time on early and acceleration never goes away for me. It's something that's paramount um, in our system. Um, but I can tell you there are others that thrive on that. And there are others that, that just can't do that kind of stuff as often as others, you know? So that kind of just goes back to individualization and watching with your eyes. You've got to be really paying attention um, and for me, that comes back to taking a lot of notes. Um, I'm very lucky at Florida and people laugh at me. I have a manager that helps me film and helps set up practice, but it also makes that I get everything filmed, whether it's an acceleration, whether it's a plyo, whether it's a hurdle hop, I have film of almost everything. So that helps me. I've got a tremendous resource of information, you know, to use. And that's where you can use testing and you know, whether for me, it's do I use a free lap when I'm doing fly 30s or fly 60s? Um, I use Brower timing devices and I'm timing, you know, 11 to 6 and, and 6 to 1 meters on the runway. So I'm getting metrics in everything that I do that's helping me make these decisions. It, um, you know, yes, it's what does your eye see, but there's also I want information that are confirming what my eyes see. Okay, she is absolutely flying and getting fast and training is working really well. We need to stick with this. Um, and I've seen, you know, she looks a little beat up. She looks like she's there's too much volume. Maybe I need to ease the volume on some of the things we're doing with Natricia. You know what I mean? And that that's kind of... Um, kind of how it went, you know, whether it was Claire, who Claire thrives more off she has to see speed more often. And when I would take, you know, those high CNS central nervous system days away, Claire would flatten out. Um, whereas Jasmine just kind of maintains it a lot easier. It's just part of who she is. Um, same thing with Dindy. Dindy, man, if you give Dindy a dose of speed every 14 to 21 days, he does not lose speed. You know, it's just, it's just part of who he is, but also he's, 29 years old. He's got a very high training age and his speed levels and, and explosiveness are very well developed. Um, you know, and in fact, that's probably this year, one of the biggest changes we made to Dindy and people would kind of laugh at me is we go every other day with Marquise. He, he just can't handle a lot of days in a row. So, and it was kind of backwards for me. And I didn't, I kind of fought myself on it because I'm like, wait, wait a minute is less really more, but I mean, he's had a tremendous year. Um, you know, I would have liked to have done a lot better at Worlds. You know, sixth is certainly not something we wanted, but, um, you know, really all fall, he did significantly less. And if people were kind of seen how little we really did in the fall, they'd probably be like, how is that possible? But it's what his body needed. And that's from listening to him and evaluating what's going on and how his body's feeling and not being so stubborn to think that I, he needs to do X in order to be successful, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when you went on those days, would you hit it pretty hard for the most part, like decent volume, decent intensity, but just every other day is a recovery day? Yeah. I mean, you know, like in the fall, um, once we got out of like the general stuff and got into the specific prep in the fall, I mean, we would really go Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, and Monday would be a pretty 
pretty hard acceleration day. Um, you know, whether he's hitting tens, twenties, thirties, forties, depending upon what time of year it is. Um, we finished with some horizontal bounding and some single leg standing long jump, um, different type of plyos and how we're doing it. And then Tuesday, he literally gets massage and treatment and does like a jog and stride. Mm-hmm. And Wednesday, we would come back and Wednesday would often be our either short run day or and speed day where we kind of have a little mix of both where we do some, some, you know, maybe it's fly 30s early, later, late on, maybe it was fly 60s and things like that. Um, and then come back and do some short run technical stuff. And then same thing, Thursday, he's getting treatment and massage and Fridays, nothing but approaches. You know, and we kind of flopped those around depending upon what we needed and working on there. There were days where Fridays was, you know, Wednesday was really tough on him and he still wasn't recovered by the time we got Mm -hmm. to Friday. Mm -hmm. Um, So Friday, we would do a little bit of tempo and then we'd come back, you know, come back out on Saturday and try and get the approach day in. Yeah. You know, and that was the thing for him. I would write, I write my plans. I write cycles, three to four week cycles, depending on, and then man, we may throw that whole thing out in the middle of the week and mm-hmm. just completely make changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and with him, it was almost like a rollover schedule. Yeah. You hear people talk about it was every day. We're going to decide how he's feeling and, and, and make a decision based on that. Yeah. So it was we were constantly giving him what he needed, but also what he could do. Mm-hmm. You know, Is the that- guys had multiple surgeries, you know, you know, tore his Achilles on his right leg and blew his patellar out on his left leg. So, I mean, he's, when we do a pretty heavy plyo speed day, sometimes it takes him three, four days to really get back to a baseline for that. And I used to just be stubborn and try and just, all right, dude, you're just going to get used to this. I'm just going to keep doing this. And at some point I was, why, why, why am I doing this? So was it, was it a first for you as a coach to kind of ease back so much? And that's why you were fighting it? Yes, you know, and it's kind of, I think all of us coaches are this way. Um, I mean, I was, I was not a very talented pole vaulter. Um, I kind of came at everything in my life is like a blue collar kind of way where you're just going to work. And that's kind of how I, I operate. And I think for me, that's, that's where I come from my training is I'm like, we're just going to do more. We're just going to, we're going to work and we can do this and I can add this. And it's as I've evolved and gotten older and and, you know, maybe smarter is the right word, but, um, to understand that more isn't always is the best thing, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, so it was absolutely like, am I really going to do this? You know, are we really going to train three days a week, mm-hmm. nothing on weekends? Yeah. And people would probably think that's crazy, but I mean, up until USA's and worlds and he jumped over eight twenty almost every single meet he was in. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we had, we had some wind issues. We, we couldn't get a legal win, but I mean, he was in the bet. He's been in the best place physically. He's been in 10 years with me mm-hmm. and it was because we did less. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you think, so you, you definitely have expressed that the evaluation is a big part of how you do things. Do you, and you've talked about work ethic being, you know, as a pole vaulter, as an athlete. And I just want to know this for selfish reasons. It's like, do you believe you've carried that mentality of being detail oriented and, and, and prioritizing work ethic and, and leaving no stone unturned from your own career? Like, is that something that's just carried in your coaching? A hundred percent. You know, it's, it's, it, um, I, I, 
that's kind of how I got, I got into coaching because I was running pole vault camps at, with uh, Rick Adig, my first mm-hmm. coach at Nebraska. And so I started doing pole vault camps and coaching high school kids. And I just fell in love with it. But um, yeah, it how I was as an athlete and whether it was, I mean, I was a walk-on. Um, I wasn't heavily recruited. So maybe there's that chip on my shoulder that I've always felt like I, I had to do I had to outwork people because I wasn't going to outskill them and out talent them. Um, and certainly that goes into my coaching. And I can tell you early on, I probably overworked some people. We probably did too much. And that certainly came from my blue collar mentality as an athlete that we're just going to, we're going to outwork everybody. Mm-hmm. And that, that isn't, especially in track and field, you know, it isn't like you hear the Kobe Bryant's talk about, you know, I'm going to just, take 10,000 shots. Well, you can't take 10,000 full speed approaches. Like it just isn't going to work. So at some point, quality over quantity has to, you know, reign supreme over what Mm -hmm. we do. Yeah. And it seems like that's a pretty common theme amongst more mature athletes is that you fizzle into prioritizing the essentials and the more like rudimentary stuff that you know you would have pieced together in the program years ago and was pretty essential at, at one point is just not going to take any precedence over you know getting the basics done with what you've just mentioned there with what Marquise was doing it's just like the cornerstones of trying to be a better long jumper and then yeah. as you've mentioned like you're you've got a refined guy now in all elements like you don't have to tell him as much on the runway when he's at competitions but then you also know that you've just mentioned that his speed and power levels are are where they need to be um, for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that kind of goes to like what you were talking about with training and, um, you know, how you make decisions with rookies versus, you know, advanced level. Um, you know, we do so much in teaching progressions and trying to make sure we're teaching these young people skills um, and a lot of time they need a lot of reps to make sure these skills, you know, these techniques that you're trying to get them to do become habit. But as you just said, at some point when those become locked into, you know, who, who that athlete is as an athlete, you just don't always have to go back and revisit that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some people, you hear people talk about, well, we got to get a base. I mean, Dindy's training base has been built for years and years. Do we have to go back and get him in shape every year? Uh, I don't think so. You know, um, also he does a much better job taking care of his body now, you know? So me doing those little things of rudiment and, and, you know, volume based sand circuits and things in which I would have, you know, thought were huge for injury inoculation and, I mean, we could get into all these little itty bitty things that we, that sure young athletes need, you know, but do he doesn't need those at this point, you know what I mean? And that's, that's where you make those decisions. And it's tough as coaches to sit here and say, all right, well, we're not going to do that basic stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to, you know, but I mean, at the same time, every single year we go back and rebuild basic stuff with everybody. It doesn't matter if you're Marquis Stindy or, you know, or a brand new freshman coming in, we still do the simple stuff. And actually the probably the biggest overriding theme in my training is we talk about doing simple stuff savagely well. You know, there is no, 
you know, you said it in the intro, there's no magic ingredient, but um, that's really what we do. We, we evaluate technique every day and, and just build it simply from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at like the runway shapes and, and doing things savagely well, what do you think are some of those things that will transfer um, as you get closer to the board? Okay. So when we're talking about the approach, I talk about three things all the time. And in order for us to judge whether an approach was well executed, all three of these things have to be there in every way. And the first one is obviously speed, right? We have to build our horizontal velocity to a maximum, right? The second one is positions, right? We've got to build posture and positions in a, in a way that we can get to an efficient takeoff position and lose as little horizontal velocity as possible. And of course, number three is we've got to be able to be accurate. We got to be able to hit a 20 centimeter and eight inch white board whenever we want, whether it's the sixth jump and there's a ton of pressure and I got to go win or whether it's the first jump and there's, you know what I mean? And so all three of those have to be present at all times. So the, um, so that's where we start with um, how we, you know, judge each approach. Um, and then you get into, well, how you build that. Um, so the things I talk about are, are, um accelerating out of the back some people call it a drive phase some people call it a push um i like to build my approaches in three segments and there's a, a drive phase or an acceleration phase a transition phase in the middle and then the takeoff phase um and so depends on the person of course but i my i like 18 steps because it kind of is six steps six steps six steps kind of builds to a rhythm, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Um, everything in track and field is so rhythm-based. Um, and that's a lot what we talk about in the approaches is how we build the rhythm and build the momentum out of the back. We establish max velocity mechanics in the middle of that transition phase. We're upright, full speed, sprinting. And then we're in a position to add as much vertical velocity or add, you know, pop without sacrificing that horizontal velocity that we've built. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, does the position and the posture we're in coming into the board allow us to be in great flight mechanics and then achieve a great landing position so that we can jump far? Um, and I know that's pretty broad, um, but really that's, that's really how we kind of build the approach. Because for me, it really doesn't matter what you do past the board if we don't build a very well-established approach with great rhythm, great velocity, great posture, position, mechanics, because if you're coming down there and you may have the greatest takeoff of all time, but if you sit, slow down, you know, and do all that coming in, it doesn't matter what you do past the board. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's really kind of how we, we talk about, um, our approaches and how we how we build those so you've mentioned strength and weaknesses kind of being a, a factor in, in how you do things at times do you believe let's just say someone's not a very good natural accelerator is that ever gonna or they're a really good natural accelerator is that ever going to influence because i know it's more about the last 10 meters as you've talked about you time those sometimes with the brower and the free lap but i'm i'm assuming at least from different jumpers i've seen it's not to say if they did it a different way it would be more wouldn't be more effective but um 
you know, some have slower buildups, some look like they're gunning it out the back. Um, right. And so have you had interactions or, or, or coached athletes where you feel like you're actually working with a very different model in terms of how you get them to that point? Yes. Yes. Um, and it's funny because right now, man, I don't know. Almost all my group has some sort of abbreviated walk-in or run-in or something. Mm. And to be completely honest, I hate them. Like mm-hmm. if, if I had my way, it would be a stationary start, yeah. right? It eliminates error. It eliminates inaccuracies, you know, but for a myriad of reasons, we, can, we don't have enough time to get into every one of us, you know, Jasmine has a dynamic start. It, Hooper has a quick dynamic start. Claire has a very ornate dynamic start. I've moved Dindy to a dynamic start, you know, and it's Claire is a great accelerator, but she doesn't, you know, she feels like the way she can establish rhythm and establish momentum is bringing in, in this little run in. And plus she's done it since she was 12 years old. So it's, you know, built in, mm-hmm. um, same thing with jazz. And that kind of goes into our, our conversation. Is that the switch you're going to make? Is that the big one that you're going to try and, and take that away of something that she's been used to and done forever, or you kind of just let her have that for now, you know, and, it obviously hasn't been a, a problem, but I mean, that was a conversation jazz and I had early. Cause I mean, just being frank jazz had some foul issues um, last year. Um, her biggest jumps were always fouls. And um, if you look indoors, especially we went six for six at almost every single competition. Mm-hmm. And that was just a big priority. And, you know, so I kind of went around the block to get to your question here, but I think, each person's skill set is different. If they can't accelerate well and they need a little help getting to speed, well, then you've got to you've got to use your coaching eyes to fix that. Um, if they're a great accelerator and they can just push and drive for days, you know, some you know that's Dindy. Dindy, he can push and accelerate. It takes him a long time to get, but he's very powerful. And so, if I don't tell him to stand up and make sure he's turning over the back he'll bound his way all the way down the whole runway mm-hmm. you know which is actually what happened to worlds and and mm-hmm. I, I couldn't get him out of that rhythm at that mm-hmm. in, in that venture and um so yeah i think that's kind of the thing and so where you give dindy a little like a little three foot half of a step run in to his first step it creates a little bit more rhythm, a little bit more momentum, and he doesn't feel like he's got to spend eight hours on the ground pushing and holding this long drive, you know? So that's where you as a coach kind of, all right, his skill set is X. Can he, can he get away with that in a way and still be elite? Or do I need to get him out of his own way so that he can be more effective, he mm-hmm. or she? vice versa mm-hmm. i hope that answered your question yeah it does and it kind of goes into your three cornerstones as well is that like okay adding the run in in some ways will probably impact the steering which is one of your three pillars but it might help the positions and it might help the speed a lot too which of course are it's not that you would ever want to sacrifice one or the other but you probably can layer in the steering once it's consistent once you're consistently trying to do the same thing I, I can just say from personal experience as well as that the run-in for me allowed me to kind of not come into that issue that you just talked about with Denny feeling like he's bounding and stringing out the back, so to speak. And you're kind of getting neutral earlier in the run, which 
sometimes I'll have to tell myself, even though I don't want it, frequency, because yeah. it won't have me extend my step too much to the point where my pelvis is out of alignment. And then you can't, you can't go anywhere then. And you're just yeah. like, you know, it's then you're, then you're screwed in terms of what well, your steering is actually screwed. Then can't see the I, board. Can't see the board. Um, and then also, you know, you're not necessarily, you're going to maybe over rotate. There's a, there's a ton of things that it could be, but I just noticed right. myself, I was able to get underneath the run a lot easier once the walk-in was established and, and feel the build and um, not get stuck in weird positions. But so I can, I can relate to that, but I think most coaches would agree with you in that in a perfect world, uh, abolish the, the walk-in. Yeah. You know, and it's, um, it's interesting because obviously you got to be able to push yourself upright. And one of the things we talk a lot about is horizontal jumpers have to be comfortable learning to accelerate in an upright vertical position, right? Because when you, when you think about it from a, I don't know, this hundred meter sprint type of thought, you know, and of course it, you know, it, there's this drive phase and you got to stay down. And, and of course that's kind of gone away as we've got, yeah. you know, but I think jumpers have that thought too. You know, the thought is in order to accelerate, I have to push, I've got to, you know, lean and be forward. And, and that's not the case, you know, and you said it exactly. I've got to be upright. I tell mine all the time, we've got to be upright by eight steps. If we are not upright at eight steps, we're never going to be able to fully push up and get our pelvis into a neutral position, get our spine and our shin angles into great vertical position so that we can hit the takeoff. But one, I can't see the board, mm -hmm. you know, and if you don't sight the board early or at least make visual where you can upright and adjust to it with your rhythm, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. So it's like, don't. Uh, what I'm hearing you say is almost don't forget the pushing mechanism, but don't associate that when you're only slanted and leaned forward. Yes. In the sense you can, that it yep, must continue. You can accelerate while you're vertical. And I know that's, it's not easy, mm -hmm. but it can be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's keeping that kind of active impulse downwards whilst you're kind of transitioning and not letting off the gas and not having to feel like you're falling over to push, so to speak. Absolutely. So when you're looking at like kind of those, um, like you, you've mentioned obviously using the timing systems and so on. Do you, do you tell your athletes like what they're running? Like I, some, maybe some, maybe not. Um, it all depends. Um, you know, there are certain people who are very, you know, they're, I don't know whether you want to call it an A personality or, you know, they're type a and and they're detail oriented and i mean you know with dindy i can tell all right dude we just hit 0.45 for the last five meters you know i can tell him what meters per second that is and he understands that all right we're we're trying to be 10.8 to 10.9 uh meters per second on the runway mm -hmm. and that's where we're at and you let the meat take it to another level mm -hmm. and you know there are certain athletes where they have no if i were to tell them and this isn't me being negative to that athlete, but it's yeah. just, if I were to tell them how fast they were going for the last five meters, it wouldn't mean anything to mm -hmm. them. It, it would be fruitless for them to know that information. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but that kind of goes back to where I take a lot of notes and I can go tell an athlete at some point and be like, look, Ed, in November, this is what we were hitting speed wise. Mm -hmm. Now it's April 
and look at how far we've progressed. Mm -hmm. So I may tell them what their times are, but only in a way to tell them how much better they've gotten or how their velocities have improved. Not necessarily where they're running through the beams going, did I hit 0.51? You know what I mean? But I mean, I think that goes back in other ways too that kind of ties into our, our, uh, my three pillars is there can be a thing is too much speed, right? Um, you know, and I can like Claire Bryant, Claire Bryant has hit 0.51 and 0.50 for the last five meters in her approach multiple times, you know? Um, but I don't know if that's the best thing for her because she blows through takeoffs and then gets over rotated, you know, clearly she's very, very fast. But there is such a thing as too much of that, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's where you as a coach got to, you know, we need a little bit more vertical and maybe, maybe it's 0.52, uh, you know, I don't, that's where I think we can also get bogged down by too many numbers and too many things and, and let your eyes work instead of what a, a laser is telling you to. Right. And I'm sure the long-term goal is to obviously have her comfortable at 0.50, but when there's an obvious jumping distance or or fault in mechanics based on that you know speed then yeah maybe settling for 0.52 is you know what's best for now and i i guess it's always a a case of like is it a physiological thing that you need to because i'll often hear coaches say like for example like they'll have pop-ups you know they'll always take off when they do approach work and so like you they'll push the athlete as as much as they're hitting that point you know, five zero to continuously try to take off at that and hope that over time that yeah, sticks it. and it's manageable. Um, do you do you take somewhat of a similar approach or is it like, uh, well, I guess you've you've noticed that it's a reoccurring theme. So initially you probably do, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's just a good thought to you're always trying to add velocity to the system, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think you're exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of times that the faster you get an athlete, that board starts coming faster. You know, there's that fear. They may not actually feel the fear, but their brain, everything's coming a little faster. Can I, you know what I mean? You said physiologic. I think it, I call it like pulling the chute, almost like where they throw a parachute out, you know, like a race car, right? When they go to stop, they throw a parachute out. That's kind of our term that you pulled the chute. You got a little scared. You let off the gas just a little bit because that thing was coming, you know, and coach Holloway jokes with me all the time. Like, you know, we collaborate with, you know, Grant and things like that. And that's honestly what started to happen with Grant. He got Grant so freaking fast that, you know, and I've talked about it with Dwight Phillips too. When Dwight was running 10 long jump wasn't always easy because it, there's almost too much speed there, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and that's where you've got to kind of figure it out to obviously you're always pushing the speed in a lot of ways, but I think, I think that's where you as a coach and athlete got to figure out what optimal is. Like I hear Dan path in my head, you know, optimal takeoff speed or optimal velocity. And um, I just think there's certainly something to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, almost like you know there's an allowance of deceleration at that point based on what they're able to manage like it's like look we we don't want this but at at this appropriate time i think about dwight phillips like it wasn't the prettiest coming into takeoff but he was just hauling it like you know and like what what are you gonna 
what are you going to do? Like, you're going to tell them like, you know, no, you need your hips up way higher. And like, you need to really bomb through that. And it's like, see what happens when, you know, because you've seen Irving Saladino do it, wow. but Irving Saladino, like is the smoothest, you know, like life. yeah, it's like the lightest, most elastic, most rhythmical thing you've ever seen. And it's like totally, totally different athlete. And you just never would ever pair the two of them with the same cues or, 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 um, you know, the mechanic, yeah. you know, they're just, they're just so different and the same era, but it was, you know, you would just in an ideal world say, Oh, if Irving had this and Dwight had that, it's like, but that's what the beauty of it is, is because they don't, and they never will. <laughs> right. There's just yeah. a thousand ways to get to the, you know, the same thing. Not everybody's the same. So mm -hmm. do yeah, you, totally. do you spend a, a lot of time on like the flight mechanics or do you really feel like that's very much an individual thing, control the rotation, um and if the run is done well it'll kind of happen itself or do you probably when freshman it's you may, may have to spend a little more time with it yeah definitely um obviously what happens past the board is is determined with how you come into the board of course um but yeah i do spend time talking about you know flight mechanics and you know um how we're checking rotation can we be more efficient at how we're checking rotation? And of course, as they become better athletes and we start adding more horizontal velocity, of course, there's going to be more rotation added to the system. And so, yeah, um, you know, we'll take off of boxes. Um, we will um, try and, you know, we spend a lot of time in the gymnastics room in the fall, jumping off of springboards and landing in foam eliminating the fear of getting to great landing positions because there's no hard sand to land on. So yeah, absolutely. That's something we, I, I think is important. Um, the more reps that you can have in proper flight and landing mechanics only lets people be more um, confident and more aggressive in how they run their approach and take off because they feel like they understand what's going to happen past the board. Mm. Yeah, that, no, that, that makes sense. I've not heard of that many, although I have seen athletes do almost on like recovery weeks and stuff, get into the gymnastics room, have a little fun in the foam pits, but it does make sense because even, um, a French coach that you probably know, uh, Renaud Langevra, he was on a couple of times and he had talked about how he, he kind of works from the beginning or works from the final position in that the landing so that he can create some predictability around what he will allow to happen on the runway. And it was an interesting concept because you often hear, you know, the run, the run, the run, and then the takeoff, you know, flight landing will happen. But it's, it's, there's definitely, it seems like room for kind of programming it on both ends in whatever order you choose, and then just kind of meshing it together. And as you said, create some predictability about what's going to happen. I, I, yeah. I quite like that. I mean, that's absolutely what I do. I mean, we, we, I, I have what we call landing school. Um, and it doesn't matter if you know how to land and you've got a great landing. I mean, shoot, when Katura Orji was here day one, we went to landing school, you know, and um, I just think that when you show an athlete what they're capable of doing, even if it's you know, it's not fast, it's slow. And it's really, you know, a gymnastics room and landing on a pad or landing in a, in a, in foam is certainly radically different than landing in sand. But I think if you can do a lot of reps 
where you have no fear of how hard that sand is or how you're going to land. And you can learn to get your feet in this massive extended position and create great balanced landing positions. It just, it just makes it so much easier to go over to the sand and figure it out. Um, I mean, it was especially like an Anna Hall. Anna Hall, of course, had foot issues, you know, and breaking your foot at the Olympic trials last year. I mean, it really limited what we were allowed to do in the fall. But I think because of that, because of going to the gymnastics room and spending time in the pool, it it frees her mind of having to think about what's happening post takeoff because she's done it so many times in a safe mm -hmm. environment. All right, I'm just it. I put a box out and let her just go rip it in the sand, and she's okay doing it because she's done it a bunch in a safe mm -hmm. environment. If that makes sense. Yeah, and there's well, something to, there's something to be said for like visualization and mental reps as well. Like I remember one year I was just. I was injured for probably four to six months, but I went pretty hard on just like filming. And, and when I was walking around the place, like I'd just be imagining a certain position and like, it was insane how much that stuck. And maybe it was at a very plastic age. I don't know if it would work now, you know what I mean? But it wow. was, it was just crazy that there was no actual reps performed physically. And I'm not saying that's the same comparison as, what you talked about with Anna, but it, it, there is similarities to that. I'd imagine in that, like the environment was different, but there was learning happening, you know, yeah. all the same. Well, I mean, they say your brain can't tell the difference between you going through a full jump in your brain and you actually doing it. You know, I mean, we do that. I mean, that's a visualization is a big part of our program and something we talk a lot about, you know? And so I, I think you're spot on. I think your brain, you went through a bunch of jumps in your brain and your body can't tell the difference between you actually doing it from, from a CNS and how you're firing those muscles and things like that. And I just, I like how you said it. And that's, you really kind of summed up exactly how I go about my training. Like we are going to start with the whole process early and we're going to teach you the whole thing from day one. We may break it down into different ways, but the whole point is you're constantly fixing and evaluating the technique of the entire process, whether it's the hop, whether it's the step, whether it's the landing, like we're going to make sure that we incrementally teach you and show you exactly what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed to feel like from day one, build the confidence that you can add velocity to the system throughout the entire process. And it just, it, it flows and builds from there. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there's almost a certain level of robustness that will be there. And so that as you're layering in the things that truly not truly matter, because it makes it seem like speed takes precedence. But, you know, there's a good argument to say that it does, but that things won't falter when you do that. And yes. That Gives you the confidence to be more of a risk taker in mm -hmm. a way. And, um, you know, and I, and I certainly think that's that's why I think technique is so important to me is because it gives you the ability to be confident mm -hmm. when you've, when you know you're in a proper position and, and doing things from a, a, a technique standpoint that, that makes sense for you, mm -hmm. you can be confident. You can go fast. You can go hard. You can, you can, you know, you can test it in practice. You can compete against each other in practice and get after it because you've laid down a solid foundation of technique to where you feel like that technique is going to be stable mm -hmm in high velocities and in a high pressure situation. Yeah. So 
that that brings me to a really good point is that you know you're constantly working on technique but you want them to be a risk taker and suppose my question is how you're hoping that that will allow the athlete to kind of go um, into autopilot almost a little bit more how do you facilitate that process then during the coaching or the like in season your communication versus out of season because i'm sure you're working fine details and, and are happy to not overcoach during the fall, but like, are you a little bit more sensitive to what and how you say things um, as you begin to go into that kind of indoor season? No, absolutely. You know, I think I'm very um, cognizant about what I'm cueing in different in different ways. Um, certainly, early competitions to me are more like practices where you're okay changing and making big changes here and there because you're trying to make sure we get to a certain level of competition. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're totally right. I, I talk a lot about the old brain and, you know, if you, if you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't have to tell your brain to pull your hand off a hot stove. Right. And that's really where we want to get to where we've gotten things so built in that it just happens naturally. Um, I play golf and So some people use free throws. I use putting, right? If you're standing over a three foot putt and you're worried about where your pinky finger is and where your big toe is and is my stance okay? Is my head neutral? Am I grip? You know what I mean? If those thoughts are going through your head instead of you standing over a three foot putt knowing I'm going to make it and you just stand there and make a great putt and make it. So that's exactly what you're talking about. My goal as a coach is through practice and early competitions to get them to a point where they don't have to think they just have to compete and they're confident enough to stand over a three foot putt and just bang it in the back door. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great description in fact. And um, I, I suppose you'll often hear athletes say themselves, like when they do PRs, although it's so easy, uh, you know, what happens when I try, it's like, no, no, no. That's exactly why you PR'd. And there was a deliberate process to get you there too. Yeah, it's funny because Dindy and I literally just had that conversation. I think that's what, that's the mistake he made at Worlds. And and I'm just as to blame too, is he tried to break the world record on every jump Mm -hmm. instead of just doing what we've been doing all year Mm -hmm. and taking care of what you know how to do and doing what you do well and letting the meat take it to another level, let meat adrenaline and the world championships take it to another level. Mm -hmm. But he tried to break the world record every time down the runway. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I feel like going to Chula, Chula Vista, because like that was where he jumped really well this year, right? Um, Yeah. That's just a very good environment for allowing yourself to just do nothing. People say to me, you know, what is it up there? Like, you know, you're going all the way over to California. You know, I was formerly in Louisiana. It's like, you know, it's, it's nothing special, but it's all of the basic things that you want in a competition in the one place at the one time and very stable in, in that, in that there's good, there's good weather. Obviously the track is, is good. Um, The board's nice, but there's good guys there and you're just, it's just a, a vibrant atmosphere where people are just out there having fun. You know, you got Jeremy Fisher out there. You might see Will Clay out and, you know, yeah. just from my standpoint, like, it's like, how can you not be happy about that? And what, when you're, when you're happy about that idea of where you are, tend you tend to be loose and, and kind of allow your best self to arrive. You're literally, that, that is the exact conversation Marquise and I had this, this week. Like when we came back from worlds and we got back to work and how we're going to move forward and, 
that's a conversation we had. Like the competitions, you were the most successful. You went there very confident. It's comfortable. It's, it's, a you know, he's jumped there a hundred times. He knows what's going on. Um, there's great, there's, you know, Jerry and Lawson's there. Stefan McCarter's there. You know, you've got high level competition and it's just great performances happen when great athletes are at great facilities and, and comfortable. Mm-hmm. So yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just funny. Cause I think people want something when, when they ask me that question is like, they want something uh, very concrete or almost like a magic bullet that there's just some secret up there, but it, it really it is just those things all piled into one. Um, and it's a difficult thing to know how to bridge the gap between that and, and going to a foreign place you know, I mean, Oregon's not exactly foreign, but it's not San Diego. And um, of course, you know, even even the Hayward field that Marquise competed in a few years ago is not the Hayward field of now. And it's not the same stage and the build up to the season wasn't the same. And, you know, his last few years weren't the same. So it's all it's just everything has changed. And so it's like your approach to getting comfortable in, in set arena is just it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to know how to task yourself with, you know, managing, but I think the cornerstone of it is like whatever way you want to have fun. And, and, and I think for me, I always think about expressing gratitude to just be there is always a good start to where I can get myself in the right frame of mind. I don't know necessarily how it unfolds after that, but I know that if I am so concerned with the competition itself that I can't even just take a look around and go, yeah, I'm competing. Yeah. And this is a great thing then I'm in trouble. And I've obviously put myself in a position where I'm putting too much pressure on myself for lack of a better word or that, you know, it's, it's kind of, this competition has been put on a pedestal that is just, Absolutely. is not, yep. yes, yes, it's true, but it's just not helpful. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes so sense. true. I mean, it's funny cause we've, um, I've done it with several athletes where we'll get to the NCAAs and I will literally walk over, show them the runway show them the long jump, have them stand there in the sand, you know, and it's, it's a joke, but it's not really a joke. It's like the runway is the same width. This is the exact same board. We have at practice. The sand is the exact same. Like it's just a track meet and it just has a fancy name. Right. And so if you forget that it has a fancy name and you do what we do every single day, we're going to be very successful. But if we let the name of the track meet, like you said, put it on a pedestal and, you know, we don't, you know, we don't execute. And that's one thing we talk a ton about. And we at meets, we go there and we execute our race plan. We execute our technique. We execute our approach. We execute what we've been working on and we will jump far. If we walk in the door trying to jump far, trying to break collegiate records, oftentimes we end up not in a space to be able to execute properly. And that's mm-hmm. when we get ourselves in trouble. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. A sports psychologist said to me recently is like, you don't find yourself in those head spaces in comp or in training. So you've, you've just taken yourself, you know, emotionally and, and mentally in a foreign place where I rarely show up to training full of anxiety where I'm like gritting my teeth to jump out of the right. damn pit. I'm, I'm trying to execute. I'm trying to do the basics. Well, trying to listen to my coach i'm trying to do the i'm trying to be coachable and it's funny how you can just like forget all that and just by the fact that you've you know maybe 
parents or yourself or what you've ever a narrative you've built up about the competition can just take you to a different place and it's just i think a subtle reminder that like you never really go there in training is is a good enough reason to say that like you should probably just treat it like it's another training session yep it, you can't go wrong putting yourself in in a position where you're comfortable you know mm-hmm. um a, a question i had and it's maybe you've already answered it but it's if you had a if you had a a lesson that you've learned in the last three years and it's maybe it's to do with Marquise's training adjustment it might be but just for you as a coach that's that's kind of changed it for you and you believe it's it's been a pivotal one what would that be oh man I, I mean I certainly probably would lead off with less is more mm-hmm. um you know um but um I would say probably more than anything is to just be diligent in why you're doing stuff, right? I think a lot of time as coaches, we do stuff, well, because that's what I've always done. Or, well, but that's what that's what we're supposed to do. Or, you know what I mean? I think a lot of times, and maybe it's our own ego, but I, I think sometimes we do things or say things to athletes or prescribe things to athletes because we think that's what they need not what they actually need. You know what I mean? And so I think for me, that's been my biggest learning process is I want to make sure, you know, that I'm giving them what they need, that I'm telling them what they actually need, not what I think they need to know, or not what my ego thinks they need to to be doing, you know. Um, And that kind of goes to all of us as coaches, you know, and college coaches or elite coaches, whatever, whatever pressure we put on ourselves or whatever pressure we have in our own unique situation to get results and everything. I think that could lend us all to try and do things that don't need to be done. And that's a really vague way of saying things, but I just think people, you know, people are going to say, well, he, he, there, there is no secret sauce, but I mean, you have to give them what they need and be diligent in what you're giving them how you're prescribing whether it's density whether it's volume whether it's whatever you want to call it i think you have to be very very smart in what you're going to do and not just do things because that's what we've always done or that's what well that's what the last 14 meter girl i had needed so of course if i every you know my next 14 meter girl, well, she's got to do all out bounding for 3000 meters. No, you know what I mean? I think we, and that's what I've really learned is we're going to individualize and um, I'm going to get out of the way and do what's best for them. Not what I think they need to do. It's funny you say that because it's almost like what the two last things we've talked about are both demonstrations about how athletes can get in their own way. And um, when particular motivations are at hand, if we take, you know, Marquise wanting to break the world record, for example, and made him do weird stuff, for lack of a better word, um, you wanting to be, you know, the best coach in the NCAA or be an award winning coach might make you do weird stuff. It, it clouds yeah. your, your, your clouds, your thinking um, yeah. in a way that's like, you know, we're both culprits of our own motivations, essentially, and that like, it's, it's not allowing us to view things in third person as if we were coaching you, you know i often find like you can always give great advice to to people that it's not yourself and usually because you have no emo- emotional attachment to it 
Right. It's like, um, you know, if you weren't advising your own athletes because they're directly linked to something you might achieve, you'd probably think of it in a more clear, open-ended way. Um, sometimes likewise, if I was coaching an athlete that wasn't, you know, myself, um, or I wasn't, you know, the athlete on the runway, I'd probably advise myself to, you know, calm down, have a, have a little fun out there. And it's very right. hard to, to talk yourself into that way of thinking. Right. Sometimes. You can get caught up in the moment of, well, got to jump this, got to score these, you know, mm-hmm. and, and of course, probably being here 10 years and the amount of success that, that we've had probably lends me to maybe be a little bit more comfortable in, in making those kind of decisions, of course, but I still think any coach can, can learn the lesson that, look, you got to really be cognizant about what you're prescribing and why you're prescribing it. And just because you read it in a book or a level one or whatever says you got to do X, that might not be right at this point in this time for that Mm -hmm. athlete, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Many of them want to get, get to where you are currently. And so like, you know, they, it's, it's just like, you know, an athlete trying to pursue the goal that they've set themselves at the start of the year, that discussion they have with you, you know, the athlete ain't going to get to eight meters if they're up, you know, 4am playing Call of Duty Warzone, the same way the, the coach ain't going to get to an SEC level school if he's just doing what he's always done and so forth. Like you, 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 you know, you reanalyze and you, you, you kind of um, do what's best for, for yourself or the, the whole group in the case of being a coach. Um, I think that's kind of a, a perfect way to just, not end the conversation, but give you an opportunity to just like allow, I know many people that listen to this, not only have they requested you, they probably already follow you on social media, but we want to keep up with what you're doing over in the University of Florida because, you know, it's a, it's a sight to see every season. So uh, how can we do that on, on social media um, from here? Well, I appreciate it. Um, you know, and I, I'd be open to do this again. I really enjoyed this. Um, like I said, I, I've got great athletes at makes it a lot easier when you have great athletes. Um, my Instagram is N Peter, N P E T E R five, five, zero. Um, we also have a, a Gators jumps Instagram. Um, it's literally Gators jumps. Um, and, uh, we just kind of started it. So we're trying to build a following there, but we're, we're, we're going to post training videos. We've got some reels and things like that, that we're posting. Um, a content creator, I am not quite that yet. I need to be better. Um, but um, like I said, I, I like helping people. And um, if I can help you in um, any way, shape, or form, you guys can reach out or whatever. But like I said, if uh, we want to do a part two, I'd be open to that too. This was uh, extremely fun, and I'm uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm delighted that you'd say such a thing, um, Nick. And it, it's it's unbelievable. Like I always say to people, look, selfishly like i love doing this because the, the community of track and field gets something out of it but for me it's like i've been you know uh, part of this sport and, and a long jumper for many years and it's like i'm getting to talk with people who i've known for a long time and and getting to just throw questions at them so like i feel like i already get enough out of this um as it is and people are uh, you know they, they understand what i mean by that so yeah of course i would love to do it again and i'm sure many other people that are listening are like yeah part two and I've, I've thought about even the idea and I, I dare I say this over the episode, but um, thought about doing round tables and stuff like that, which I know would, yeah. would people would really get into that for sure. Yeah. I think it'd so. be good. Well, it's, it's funny because I actually, 
I, I, I've known Ian for so long. Oh, I yeah. How I got to know Ian. It's just like we kind of got to, you know, and I remember when you were just coming out of high school and jumping and he was coaching you. And so, like, I've, I've been following you for longer than you probably even realized. So mm-hmm. um, keep up the good work um, and uh, appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, we're still still jumping away and still in contact with Ian myself. He is uh, he is an interesting guy, to say the least. I'm not surprised yeah. that he fi- found a way to track you down and exactly. stay in touch. Um, folks, thank you for taking the time out to listen to this episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast, as Nick said. We'll probably find ourselves uh, sitting on the opposite side of Zoom again very soon, and I hope you enjoyed it. And until then, take care. Thank you.